0: What's up guys, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. Today I'm going to address a question that I get quite often from the younger audience members in this community and that is, how do you get started in property in the first place? Now rather than going into some of the obvious stuff, I know I've covered this in the past, but what I want to do today is go through a couple of questions for you to ask yourself. And I expect this may actually prove to you or show to you the path that is most suited to you personally in your present circumstances, surrounding uh, you know in terms of your money, your expertise, your network, your time. It's it's. I'm also going to go and outline a number of the legal considerations that you might wish to consider, uh, and, and and just the options that are in front of you when you go down that road. So without further ado. Let's jump into today's episode. You are listening to Behind the Facade, and I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and your behaviour, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Hello, guys and gals. It's the start of another week, and I hope you are all winning. So, before I jump into the content I wanted to discuss uh, today, I thought I'd mention a couple of things. Firstly, um, some of the content that you're going that I'm going to be covering today has been inspired by the uh, free weekly training workshop that I've been hosting over on Zoom. And I've had some great feedback from the attendees. Uh, So if you'd like to drop into that, I will find a, you you will find a link um, to register in the show notes below. And you'll also see the event listed in my Facebook group, which is called Behind the Facade Community. I also wanted to mention, the there's a couple of things that I have my eye on at the moment, and it's something that I'm just watching in terms of the property market and things that could actually impact it. And so one of the things is the China market, I've given this a fair bit of mention in recent times, then there's also global inflation, and then there's the US stock market. And uh, so I got to say, I remain very concerned about all three of them, and the Evergrande if you go and uh, look up YouTube these days there's just endless amounts of videos on the Evergrande situation and I did cover that myself in episode 79 of the podcast and there's more bad news coming out of China and I can't help but think that this is going to have some impact on the property market that we're and what we're looking at at the moment is the It's kind of like a crash that's slow moving, that's kind of coming towards and you can't really stop it. And I think um, it's kind of like a moving, like an oil tanker and an oil tanker slowly drifting towards you. And like it's happening quite slowly, but you can't actually do anything about it. And that's something that I can see happening. Just Chinese property market, it, it impacts, you know, it's such a huge thing. The possibilities of that going down and dragging with it, you know, the construction industry. And, you know, you might think that we're over here in Ireland and the UK and America, wherever you're listening from, that it's very remote. But it's such a massive, massive country, um, economically speaking. There was more concrete poured in China in the last three years than there was in the entire hundred years of the last century in the US. So, that gives you an idea, just the scale that we're talking about in China. And if that was to kind of get uncoupled and uh, and kind of fall over, you are going to find that um, the property market could get impacted and construction market could get impacted. And so I'm just watching that. But hard to tell because there's, you know, supply and demand in the Irish market is kind of different. And the UK, it's different again. And then the US, it's different again. So will it impact it i don't know we'll have to wait and see the next thing that i'm watching very carefully is inflation and i'm not just talking about in this country i'm talking about in the us in the uk here in ireland there is just inflation is something that's starting to come more and more into 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 my certainly into my daily life i'm noticing that filling up the car now is costing a bloody fortune and um the price of everything is going up and price of Houses is going up, petrol is going up, foods going up. Everything is kind of drifting up. And also labor. I mean, uh, on building sites and stuff at the moment, we are looking at huge increases in the amount that we're having to pay the laborers and stuff like that. And I mean, I'm not talking about a small increase. I'm ca- talking about doubling of what we had expected to pay some of the different trades and stuff. And uh, And it just means that everything is kind of drifting up. And so that's going to have an impact and that's going to force us probably to push our prices up as well in order to maintain the profitability that we had before. Now, what was interesting is the US Federal Reserve just came out in the last few days and they admitted that they have gotten it wrong and that it is now much, much higher than they expected it to be. But again, they keep on saying everything's going to be fine. This is just a kind of a passing thing. But there's quite a few commentators out there now that are starting to talk differently about it. And so I do think we could be looking at interest rates increasing in the next while. And if interest rates increase, obviously that's going to push the affordability of property prices down. You're going to have a situation where people went and they took out a mortgage based on a certain amount. And uh, that mortgage costing them X amount every week. And all of a sudden you're into a situation where you now can't afford that any longer. So it's... It's just, you know, when you see those kind of things happening, I do think it's quite possible that you're going to find interest rates going up and that's going to make property less affordable and therefore there's going to be a bit of a downward sort of push. Now, if you want to know more about interest rates or uh, inflation and its impact on interest rates and stuff like that, you can go and listen to my podcast episode 61, I Went Into Inflation. Uh, But I definitely think it's going to have an impact and it's going to continue going the way it's going. And then finally, in terms of the things that I think could impact the market, I'm looking at the U.S. stock market. And where can I even begin on this? It's just some of the companies, the valuations have just gone into the stratosphere. And um, the valuations, I mean, just to give you an example, Elon Musk this week started selling off about 10% of his holdings in Tesla. And in the process of doing that, he's netting himself about $28 billion in cash and now most of that is going to be used up in paying tax that he was that he had due coming on some options that actually um, are coming up but you don't need to worry about our friend uh, Elon Elon is, is still going to be worth about 250 billion dollars he's actually worth nearly 100 billion more than uh, Jeff Bezos now and that's just in the last year prior to that he wasn't anywhere near it And so a quarter of a trillion dollars, a person is worth a quarter of a trillion dollars. It's kind of insane. And that's derived from the value of his Tesla stock. And what's really interesting is that if you just have a look, I mean, I'm not going to knock the company, you know, Tesla as a company and as a brand, it's, you know, it's really out there. It's really doing well. But just in terms of evaluation, if you kind of sit back and remove yourself from all of that and just simply look at the valuation, Tesla today is worth a trillion dollars as a company. And that is worth more. I'm gonna give you some figures now and you're just gonna be blown away by all of these values. All right, so Toyota is worth 284 billion. uh, VW is worth 144 billion. Daimler-Benz is worth, which is the Mercedes company owner, it's worth 104 billion. General Motors is worth 84 billion. Neo, which is the biggest Chinese uh, vehicle manufacturer, is worth 69 billion. BMW is worth 66 billion. There's another company called Stellantis. I'm not sure what cars they do, but that's worth 64 billion. Ford is worth 63 billion. Ferrari is worth 45 billion. And Hyundai is worth 44 billion. So the, f- the 10 of those companies added together adds up to 966 billion which is still less than the price of Tesla at the moment and what's what's actually interesting as well if you go and look in it even more is that uh, in terms of the number of cars that Tesla is producing it's this year it's going to it's on course to deliver something like 500,000 cars now compare that with Toyota Toyota alone last in this year will produce 9.5 million cars volkswagen will produce 9.3 million cars and so just the first four or five of those companies are producing over 20 million cars and yet a tesla is worth 10 times all of those car uh, companies t- you know when you add it all up it just doesn't make sense so i am just gonna speculate that i just think that it's overvalued and there's a good chance it just this feels you know i'm a certain age i can remember 2000 i can remember the the dot-com bubble bursting the last time and there is a kind of a feeling like that at the moment and even though the housing market property market's not connected to the stock market necessarily and like all of these tech stocks and the valuations of them they're not necessarily connected to the housing market certainly not here in ireland um you're still gonna see a bit of a hit, I would have thought, if there's a crash in that market. What happens is there's a thing called the wealth effect. And the wealth effect is where you're sitting on assets that are worth a certain amount, and you feel wealthy because of it. So if your house has doubled in value, you feel wealthy. If you've got shares sitting in, say, a pension fund, or if you've got shares sitting in a portfolio, and they're worth you know, tw- 20 times what you ever thought they'd be worth, you're gonna be feeling a certain amount of wealth and you feel like you can afford to splash out certain things, you can afford afford to take out loans, you can afford to buy things on credit, all of that stuff is how you feel when you're in that kind of wealth effect. And if there is a crash in the US stock market and the whole thing comes coming down, you know, if, if Tesla stock falls by say half the price or something like that, which is possible given the current valuation, You could find a huge number of people suddenly in difficulty. And some of them will be in difficulty because they're buying shares using debt. And there's a thing called buying on margin. And when you do that, you're actually borrowing the money that you've bought the shares on. And that can really affect you. But there's also a just simply the wealth effect. And if the wealth effect is starting to creep into your brain and you're starting to think to yourself, geez, I'm not actually as wealthy as I thought I would, then you're going to pull back on making certain investments. And that can actually cause the market to kind of fall back a bit and guys will get more cautious more conservative and that's kind of what happens so anyway it's um it's i think because of all of these things here it's actually the perfect time to be kind of studying and learning about the property market because when the crash does come along and i'm sure it's going to happen i mean whether it's this massive crash that lasts years or whether it's a short-term blip that's something that I can't tell you, but I do think it's a good time to be ready so that you can actually take advantage when the prices do kind of come off, and they have to. I mean, you can't have the prices just continue going up in perpetuity. Things do come down, and uh, and I saw that back in 2008 when everyone thought it was all going fine. The market crashes down, and uh, we ended up sort of five or six years trying to recover in that case. Now, there was other markets that didn't take so long uh, to uh, to bounce back. And so I don't think the Irish market will necessarily take years to come back if there is a kind of a uh, a falling off in the values and stuff. Anyway, let's get into today's main topic. The question I get a lot is, how do you get started in property? And it's um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. And these are questions that I'm hoping will help you just figure out some of these things yourself and first of all I want to ask like what kind of property investor are you today and what kind of property investor do you see yourself being at some time in the future it's always good to have like a vision of what you see yourself doing say 10, 15, 20 years from now and so the choices are currently if you're considering where you're at, if you're watching this now listening to this you may be no property owner at all, you don't have any property at all, you would like to be one of these in the future Number two, you might be a homeowner. So you just own your own home, nothing further, and that's where you're at at the moment. Number three, I call it the accidental landlord, and that is where you have bought property in the past, say your own home, and rather than sell it when you were moving to another place, you decided to keep it or rent it out. And so that is kind of accidental landlord. You've become a landlord, but you didn't go into it uh, as a property investor per se. The next is, property investor the standard property investor you know people do buy to let they do flips all of this kind of stuff it's not sophisticated it's kind of the entry level that to get into the market then there is property developers now those are people that kind of get a slightly more complicated stuff you're buying a piece of land you're actually having to go go through construction you're having to go through a whole planning hiring uh, architects and all that so there's more involved and there's more profits um, in that kind of a thing and then lastly, what I call the, are you a real estate entrepreneur? And those are people that are, I suppose, it's, it's a kind of a higher level, a bigger scale, and it's more complicated, more structured deals, dealing with investors, multiple banks, dealing with multiple streams of revenue, uh, lots of different projects, lots of different sort of portfolios. If you're into that kind of thing there, you're kind of at the upper level of it and you've got lots of different things kind of going on at multiple times. And so these are the different things that you can aim for. And some people, you know, I've stacked those in order of, say, difficulty and complexity, but it's not intended as kind of a recommendation that you make it to the top. It's it's not necessarily where you want to be. Um, a real estate entrepreneur is somebody who is kind of like completely encased in the property market. There'll be some people out there that are, say, in a different property or or in a different industry or in a different profession, and they simply want to buy and have a couple of properties as a a storage of wealth, or they want to just sort of have some property maybe that they'll hand on to their kids or something like that. That is a perfectly legitimate reason to kind of get into the property market. You don't need to be going in with this kind of big plans to kind of dominate the whole place. Um, Some people will have more time than others. And so that is another form of why you would go into the property market. Some people have got, um, you know, they just don't have any time like a solicitor, for example. They work kind of long hours in offices and therefore they just maybe buy the odd property and it's like a buy to let and they'll just park it there and they'll collect the rent on it. Other people would have more time and maybe they can roll up their sleeves and they can actually get into refurbishment of properties and flipping and that kind of thing. So you're really just going to decide what area are you in? What are you looking to achieve? Are you looking to kind of go further into it and kind of get more into the sophisticated stuff? And the, uh, uh, you know, development is risky and there are risks that you have to be conscious of. And so you always best to kind of start at the lower end and work your way up because you can get that wrong and it can cost you a lot. So question, your, ask yourself, which one of those are you now and which one would you like to be in the future? Now the next question is aimed at evaluating your core strengths as an investor. And it's an exercise that I call the M-E-N-T exercise or the MENT exercise. And M stands for money, E stands for expertise, the N stands for network, T stands for time. And so you just got to ask yourself, those four criteria, which of them are you lacking in or are you sort of looking good in? And uh, like money, when it comes to money, a lot of people kind of think, oh, well, I've got no money at all. And so if you've got no money at all, that is going to be, um, you know, that's a certain position that you're in and you're going to have to go and find a... Um, you're getting no money at all it's going to point you in the direction of certain strategies and the strategy might be that you go down the road of looking at for these like no little or no money down deals um also it would also point you towards maybe trying to find a money partner or capital partner expertise is what you're good at, I mean, and how can you leverage that? So for example, if you're a person who is in a trades background, if you're like a contractor or something like that, you've got expertise there that not everyone has and therefore that is actually of value. And you may not have much money, you may not have a great network, but just those skills alone can actually be leveraged. And uh, so there is opportunities there. Network. sometimes people have no money or expertise or time, but they're fantastic networkers. And uh, like people who build rapport and they're just a natural kind of person to kind of make friends, very outgoing. Those people can go out there and whatever they're lacking, they can actually find people that can open doors. They can find people that'll invest in them. There's all sorts of ways to actually plug those gaps. So a network is very important. And if if you're lacking those other things, the network can actually help you plug all those gaps. And then finally, uh, time. So have you got any time available? Now, if you've got none of the above, but you've got lots of time on your hands, so if you're, say, a student or something like that, you're actually in good shape because you've got the time to, A, learn your, you know, learn all of the stuff you need to learn to become better at this, but you've also got the time to go out and source deals. Once you understand how a deal comes together, you can go off and you can actually start looking for those deals. A lot of people who have money just don't have any time to go out there and do the sourcing of deals. And the sourcing of deals, like if you think that opening up some online website or platform is where you find property deals, that's where you're mistaken. Property deals are found kind of by going out, walking the streets, knocking on doors, finding out who owns that empty house or whatever. And that kind of thing is actually very valuable. If you just go on a, a website and think, okay, here's a person who's selling the property and I'm just going to bid on that. If there's 40 or 50 other people bidding on that property, which is what's happening at the moment, it's so kind of heated out there, you're actually going to get no bargains. You're just going to be paying through the nose for the property. And so people with time that can go out and uncover the kind of the better deals, the quiet ones, they're the ones... Um, that actually have an advantage so if you can partner up with somebody who has the money and the expertise then you're the person who can wait and to kind of sniff out those deals that again makes you valuable so whichever of the answers you have to those the ment exercise that will inform the strategy that makes most sense for you and um, and so it's well worth going and having a look at all that and uh, i'll give you an example for um If you have no money at all, then obviously finding a solicitor or somebody like that, you know, you might have friends from school or college or something like that that actually have the ability. They have money. A lot of the time, say I'm using solicitors as an example, but it could be anyone who's kind of professional who works very long hours. Doctors is is another one, Uh, you know, a GP or something like that. They work long hours, but they've got pretty reasonably good pay. Uh, The only issue is, is that their time, poor they're cash rich but time poor and so if you can find those guys and partner up with them they could actually have a pension fund that's well stocked up with cash and they're just looking for opportunities to invest you come along with a deal and you can actually structure some sort of a deal where you get paid we'll say an equity slice that is based on sweat equity and then they put in capital and so that is a deal that's the kind of stuff that i've done in the past and it's where you basically you've gone out, you found the property, you've done the hard work, you've done the heavy lifting, they have just brought money to the deal, and that could be a reasonable way to kind of split, say, a 50-50 joint venture down. Depends on how much you're bringing to it and how much effort uh, goes into it. I mean, if you're gonna be running a project from start to finish, then it seems pretty reasonable that you get paid for that, and your payment, in, in lieu of payment, you might just get equity in the deal that matches the amount of cash that the guy has to put in and you both borrow or something like that. So how do you come across money, sources of funds? There's a lot of different ones out there and uh, obviously you've got your own self. Um, Do you have any savings? Most people when they're starting out, they don't have anything or they have a couple of savings but not, not much. And if you start to use all of that, there'd be nothing left. So you do have to kind of look at ways that you can expand that and whether that's through friends and family or You can go to lenders. So there's obviously, if you're talking about lenders, you can go out there and the traditional lenders, the, the, the banks that everyone knows, they're on every main street, there's building societies, there's all that. There's also introducing into the market a lot more these days. You'll see they're basically lending businesses. And so they're companies. There's, here in Ireland, there's one called Capital Flow, there's another one called Dillisk, there's, uh, there's ICS, there's Castlehaven Finance, there's a couple of different ones out there. And those different companies, they are more expensive some of the time, a lot of the time they're more expensive than a traditional bank, but they are easier to deal with and they are sort of faster and they're... They just have a a kind of a quicker response and a a better appetite for risk. And so you can get into a partnership or into a lending agreement with those guys easier than you would with a bank. Um, Other alternative ways is just to partner up with somebody. And so you can go down the road of having a 50-50 partner. And I mentioned earlier equity, your your sweat equity combined with, say, somebody's money could be a good deal where they're like a silent partner. And uh, that's a great option that works quite well. Because sometimes, you know, somebody sitting on a, a pile of cash in a pension, at the moment, you're probably losing money in in terms of cash because they we're in negative interest rates at the moment. And even when the interest rates were higher, they were at like 1% or half a percent or something like that. So people who have money sitting in a bank account, whether it's a pension fund or just savings and stuff, they're actually losing money at the moment on that. And so if you can come along with a good deal that actually stands to make the money, then they're going to be interested in that deal. And obviously, you have to build a relationship with them. You can't just rush in. It takes time to form relationships with investors and to build um, rapport. But that is a good option. Uh, when you get into the more sophisticated side of things, there's investors. And uh, investors are not partners. They're investing in the deal. They're not you know, on the hook if the deal goes down um, where the banks would come after them or something. They've simply put money into the deal and they expect a return of so much. Now, the more sophisticated the investor, the more sophisticated deals can be structured. You can get into deals where they have a mix of debt, they're putting in money, they're lending you money, and they get a coupon on that money or they get interest every year on that money, and they're also getting an equity slice in the deal. So there's lots of different ways to structure these. The next thing I wanted to go into was um, some of the legal agreements that you need to consider If you're going to go down the road of entering into say a partnership or in working with investors or lenders or whatever. And there is there's a lot of legal agreements out there, and at the very outset, you got to think about what it is you're going to be doing. And um, if you're going to if you know the the first thing you got to do is you got to trash out the, the main terms that you're looking for. So if you're looking at a deal with somebody you're going to say okay i'm going to i'm bringing this to the deal you're going to bring that to the deal and we're going to split the profits you know so much that's that's a pretty simple structure of a deal you would come up with heads of terms around that and uh, so there's a different there's different names for this you can call it a memorandum of understanding you can call it a letter of intent uh, the memo of understanding is called an MOU and when i was living in the middle east that was everything they were always talking about MOUs and signing an MOU Um, heads of terms or a term sheet all of this stuff a lot of the time these mous and stuff they're not actually binding agreements what they are is it's kind of an understanding as to what the agreement that you're going to enter into will actually um, contain like the different terms and stuff and so it's not always binding sometimes it is binding but not always and so you need to be careful that you know what you're actually getting into if you're if you're getting into an agreement with somebody, and it's not a binding agreement, then you could all be out there thinking that you actually have a deal when you don't. Uh, the next thing is after you've made your, you know, you've exchanged heads of terms, usually you'll do it with a, at the top of the of the sheet, you'll have, you know, not binding, uh, you know, all of these kind of terms to make sure that everyone understands that this is not yet binding, this is still kind of in draft format. And you remove that at the last second when everyone is signing off on it and um, what you will do then is get into like a proper agreement where there will actually be solicitor involved drawing up partnership agreement or drawing up a co-ownership agreement or might be a shareholders agreement whatever it is depends on the structure if you've got a company then it's going to be shareholders if you've got a um, partnership then obviously partnership is a different type of agreement Um, now i know what you might be thinking a lot of people are kind of thinking, look, I'm working with a mate of mine, I've known him for years, we were in school together, we go way back, uh, handshake is all we have, and that's all we're you know we're going to deal with. See, in the property market, that is not a good idea. First of all, property agreements, anything to do with the real estate agreement, certainly in the Irish market, it's, it's not a legal agreement unless it's actually written down. And my advice would be, don't do anything on the basis of a handshake, not because you don't trust your mate, or your friend or whatever but because you never know what the future holds in property and deals can go bad like through no fault of your own the market takes a turn whatever it is and it can lead to a falling out over who's to blame or it could just simply lead to a falling out over somebody is in a different circumstance to the other party so if you're if you've got like you know something else that's propping you up and keeping you in in you know with money in the bank or whatever, that's fine. But if your partner is actually, that was the only deal he had, or that was all of his money, and now it's gone, that can actually cause all sorts of problems between you. So you do need to be careful that you draw up these agreements while everyone is in good, uh, you know, gets on well together, first of all, uh, at the very, very outside of the deal, just so that nothing surprising can come along and throw, throw the whole deal sideways there's also things to consider like changes of circumstances and this can alter the dynamic in your relationship with a with a with a good friend let's say for example you and your mate when you go in and buy a property together you are both single and you you do the deal together and it's throwing off you know a certain amount of money every week or month or whatever it is and you're both kind of taking that money and it's great and while you're single everything is fine this is You know, nice and you can kind of build on that. You buy another property and you buy another property and it grows up to a certain size. This is all great. But then let's just say, for example, your friend gets married and has a couple of kids before you do. You're still single, but he now has a wife and a couple of kids and the kids are in school. It's all starting to cost a few quid more for him than it is for you that can actually, it's nothing to do with having a falling out. It's simply simply a change of the financial circumstances that that person is under. And he may now require access to more cash and the monthly amount that you're getting out may not be enough for him. And he might just simply say, look, uh, it doesn't suit me anymore, this deal. I'd like to go and get my profit out of the deal. I'd like to sell and uh, let's go and sell the property. Now, you're single guy, you're there, the money coming out is great. You're thinking, no way, I, why would I sell? Like, I, I want to hold on to this property and I want to keep on, you know, taking the cash out. So suddenly you're in a disagreement over what's happening next. And if you had done a, an agreement at the very beginning, the most likely that you would actually have this all sorted out and you would have an agreement and a mechanism in place to actually do it. So if somebody wants to sell the property, and somebody and the other party doesn't want to sell the property, then you have a pre-agreed mechanism that the value the pro- property gets valued by one a- agent, and then you appoint another agent, and the two agents together come up at a price. And then if there's a massive difference between the two, then you could end up in a situation where you um, you have like a third agent or, or a th- an arbitrator that comes along, and uh, that is one of the ways that you can do it now. It's This is one of the reasons why it's important to do this. If you, if you don't agree on the price, you can actually get into a situation where he wants you to buy him out. And you don't want to sell, but you don't necessarily want to buy him out because now you're going to have to take on a load of extra debt and stuff. And he needs the cash now. You're going to disagree on the price. It's just, it's not worth getting to that stage and finding that you're in this kind of situation. Now, the next uh, thing that I want to cover is the scenario uh, that people don't like to actually consider but it is actually death and uh, incapacitation and that is an area that you know most people assume that that's never going to happen but if you and a mate get into a property deal together and you own this stuff and if your mate dies um, you know first of all it's a loss that you're going to you're going to be sad about that but the worst thing is is that when he, when he when you when he dies he leaves that property in an, an estate for his family and whether he's married or not or whatever the situation might be there's going to be an executor appointed to go and actually administer that estate for you know for his probate or whatever and that's where you can get into a situation where you're no longer dealing with your mate the handshake agreement doesn't work anymore because now you've got an executor who might be a solicitor or somebody that you just don't have a relationship with, and his job is simply to get the family the best possible price for that. And it could be that he agrees, like, that's fine, we'll stay in this deal together, but they're going to be a little bit unsure because there's nothing written down, there's nothing to stop you taking advantage, whereas your mate would have, you know, everything would have been fine between you and your mate. When you're in a situation where you're dealing with somebody who doesn't know who you are, it's going to be altogether different, and this is where there's also issues that can arise. Now, probably the worst possible scenario is one that most people don't actually think about, and that is, it's not. it sounds like it's not as bad as death, but actually incapacitation. If you're crossing the street tomorrow and you get run down by a bus, we'll say, and you haven't been killed outright, you're actually sitting in a coma in a hospital bed somewhere, and let's say you're you're out out for the count for a year or something like that, which has happened, and and actually have a friend who went through something terrible, and he, and it took him more than a year to kind of actually get back on his feet and actually recover consciousness and stuff. But um, in that situation, unless your family member has got an enduring power of attorney, and that is a power of attorney that'll actually allow you to continue to, uh, to like allow your family member to step into your shoes and basically sign off on your on your behalf, you can be sitting in that hospital bed in a coma and nothing can be done with that property. So if tomorrow there is like some sort of a stock market crash and everything, the price of everything is starting to drop, you are sitting in the hospital bed, your partner is trying to sell the property on behalf of him and you because he thinks this property is gonna crash in value, we gotta get out now. Nothing can be done because you're incapacitated. And unless that power of attorney exists, it's called an enduring power of attorney. That is it. You're basically locked into that property until you either die or until you recover. And um, I've seen it actually happen where you end up in a situation where just the property, nothing can happen, nothing can do, nothing can be done to that property at all. And um, it's just, you have to just sit back and wait for the person to recover or to die. And either way, it's it's an awful situation to be in. So, legal agreements in place and having some sort of a power of attorney in place is just the best way to go about it so that's the um yeah i think that's enough for today guys the next week i'm going to be getting into some of the actual agreements that lease uh commercial leases and stuff um work with and um you know there's a lot of different agreements when it comes to commercial property so i'm going to go into that next week And finally, if you found any of this helpful today, please consider joining my weekly Property Investor Roundtable, which is a group coaching that I do in Zoom. And the link is in the show notes. And you can also find it in my Facebook community. And the Facebook community is called Behind the Facade Community. All right, guys, that's the show. Uh, Catch you all back here next week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed this or found it useful, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes or indeed share the episode out with a friend. This helps us grow the episode and reach more people. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media by my handle, Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all the projects I'm working on by joining my tribe. You can do that by adding your name over at gavinjgallagher.com. That's all for now. See you back here next week.